0: Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and on this show, we're here to explore how products are brought to market and talk about lessons learned along the way. Today, we'll be talking about the evolution of change in the space and to help me dive into this topic, I've brought a special guest. Chris, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Amanda.
1: My name is Chris Winder. I'm the director of marketing for OpenText. But really, you know, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk about this with Amanda is I have about a decade long experience in IT consulting where I've talked to a lot of vendors, talked to a lot of customers. And this is, this is a subject that Amanda and I have really had some great conversations for. And I'm really excited for, for this today.
0: Amazing. And we've had a lot of great discussion around how things have changed, whether it's technology, frameworks, you know, people that you work with, teams that you work with, because these are things that have changed in the last 10 years, especially in this space. You know, how has product management changed over time? What are things that you've noticed that have changed that has made it your life easier or harder?
1: It's a great area that goes really deep. And, and I think one of the things for me that I've seen a lot of is really the effect of consumerism. And I don't mean necessarily the whole Steve Jobs, we have to, we tell them what they want kind of stuff, but just the idea that we work from home nowadays, we have this experience where we all need to know about it before we're willing to take it to our boss. And so as a user, the product has to talk to me as a user. Whereas before, particularly in B2B, where you know both you and I have spent a ton of time, that wasn't always a tr- the case, right? You, you'd have this downward pressure. Now, nowadays, it's kind of upwards, right? Users tell the organization what makes sense, what products are best for them. And that changes the dynamics a lot.
0: No, 100% agree with that. And then I think you know, one thing you and I have talked about a lot as well is the nuances, depending on your customer, working in the B2B space, everything from... SMB to mid-market to enterprise is a very different space to work in. You know, in SMB, there's a lot more flexibility. If people aren't happy with your product they're going to leave. Versus an enterprise, they're kind of bound a little bit harder to your terms and conditions. So especially in the enterprise space, I mean, I'm starting to see slow shifts in that space where things still go through procurement, but we're still doing that. You know, what are some things that you hope to see enterprise businesses change when it comes to their purchasing habits?
1: I think what's really interesting is work from home has really changed a lot of things. I know spending a lot of time with our customers. And one of my rules here at OpenText is working with our ISV community who are selling software themselves. And what they're really looking at and what they're seeing is that there's this weird dichotomy between what the user brings to them and then what the, the enterprise has in that RFP or that procurement process, right? And that's where it gets really funny is you have a user who says, this is a great product. They bring it to procurement folks or their bosses, and the boss goes, that's great, but we're going to go with this thing over here. Now, from a marketing perspective, that's great for us because it gives us back the opportunity to be in the game if we have the product over there. But from a pure, what's the best product that gives you efficiency? As a software user myself, I'd like to see more of that empowerment as far as, you know, can we bring in what a user actually needs to be successful into enterprise software. I think that's something that we haven't seen yet. And I really am looking forward to the day where that becomes a table stake of these kind of decisions and how products go to market.
0: No, 100% agree with that because I am looking forward to the day that I don't have to fill out security documents as an SE (laughs) or even fill out a SOC 2 documentation to say that, yes, we're compliant and we can work with your enterprise systems. So, I mean, that's not fun. You don't enjoy that? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, ask any SC. I don't think we particularly enjoy it. It's the same standardized set of questions and it's more of a checklist and a process than it is a viable, hey, is this actually going to fit the thing that you need it to do? Whether it's, I need this software to help my employees, but yeah, we can check off all of your you know requirements. That's easy. I think a lot of software vendors can. So that's something I hope to see kind of disappear in the next couple of years as well as, you know, we're always seeing these procurement departments put these checklists out there. Maybe it's time to minimize the number of checks that you need in order to get a signature.
1: I think that's a great part of it. And you know what? I That brings up a really interesting point to me, which is the feedback loop for products, right? If it's gotten to the point where you need a new product, why not ask a company you have an, a, a relationship with? And How does that get turned into a legitimate product roadmap item? I think that's a really interesting area that, that I think a lot of companies aren't taking enough advantage of.
0: Oh, 100%. I think if you've got a customer advisory board, it's more than just, hey, do you like my product? Can you tell me how you want to enhance it? It's got to be a little bit more communicative where we're taking an active interest in why is it not working? You know, one thing I think marketers love to do is ask a ton of questions, but is it really getting to the heart of how do I then turn this into a roadmap feature? Yeah, there's a little bit of a gap there still.
1: Yeah, and it's that idea of, and I like to think of it this way: how do I get permission to ask a deep questions? I think we sometimes assume that they love our products, and so they're gonna they're gonna be as invested in, in answering that 14 page summary document that we've asked them to fill out as we are getting it done. And we we sometimes forget you have to have permission to take somebody's time away. And I think that's one of the things that is really changing. And hopefully we're starting to get to the point where people are legitimately going to make those changes.
0: Oh, agreed. I also think we got to get to that point too, where marketers feel comfortable asking even silly questions. One thing <laughs> I really hate is when I go into a meeting, you know, the word engagement can mean a hundred different things depending on the client that you're talking to. I need you to define what engagement means before I go into my definition of it so I know we're aligned. And I think that's something as a marketer myself that I try to practice. I worked with a guy in the past who used to call himself a product psychologist, because he'd walk into our (laughs) customer advisory board meetings and sit with a customer and say, hey, you know, you said ease of use. Why is this thing not easy for you to use? And what does ease of use mean to you? And I kid you not, we got three different responses from three really great customers. Ease of use meant less buttons to click to one person. Ease of use meant it meant that I actually did not have to do six different things in order to get the job done and to another customer that just meant making his day easier that's all so slightly varied, like different variations of what that meant but it really helped us to define okay well now we know that this guy's looking for less killicks. the other guy needs you know less time spending on a task and the other guy just wants to know that there's an automated process versus having to go through six different teams to get what he needs done. But that helped us to develop our questions a little bit better as well.
1: Yeah. And it goes to, to that point of how do you, you know, and I think it's one of the the things that I'm most interested to talk about over the long course of this, hopefully the long course of this podcast is how does that feedback get back into a product, right? And I think that's, I think that's one of the things that you and I have, have talked a lot about. And we've talked with other people about. It's a really interesting question, but it You know, to the point of what does user engagement mean? means a lot of different things to a lot of people.
0: Yep. Great example of that. And it made me laugh. And it's actually a personal call of mine now that someone else has brought it up. Packaging. (laughs) Bacon packaging. You pay $7.99 in stores for a package of bacon, but you only need a couple strips at a time. Why no one's put a Ziploc thingy on it yet is beyond me so someone if anyone's listening to this podcast that works in (laughs) packaging please fix bacon packaging to start with
1: (laughs) right because everything else nowadays has a ziploc on it my cat food has a ziploc on it
0: yeah my everyday you know grocery necessities still doesn't have a ziploc on it but things like your cat food my rabbit food also has a ziploc on it so that's one thing i'd love to see fixed
1: and you know, we're not the only ones thinking that. That is sitting in some roadmap queue somewhere that somebody has <laughs> gone. And they don't really mean that. That's not what they actually mean by that. They can't mean that.
0: Yeah. I know inflation is <laughs> happening. But if you're going to make me pay a little bit more for the bacon that I've already been purchasing for the last four years, I expect to sit <laughs> on it. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs>
1: yeah. Don't make me use another bag.
0: Exactly. Which brings us to our next point because we've kind of talked about it here and there we've talked about a little bit about frameworks and I don't know about you but in the last couple years one thing that I've noticed is that there's a million frameworks now (laughs) there's too many and I think one thing that's getting harder and harder to do is figuring out what framework actually works for your business and how do you make sure that it sticks and I think a really good example of this let's take P&G for example they're great marketers One of the most interesting products that they've ever released that was actually a bit of a grievance for them was Febreze. You know, the product was created to take away bad smells and it did what it did. Problem was, you could not sell it. Even though it was created in 1996, if you think if anyone ever goes back and watch the original commercials, there is a woman that actually has a really stinky coat because in the 90s, you could go to a restaurant where people were still allowed to smoke, but you would come home and your jacket smelled like cigarette smoke. Well, she was spraying her coat with Febreze. It still wasn't enough to convince consumers that this was a product that they needed. So they had to go back and think about it. And there's actually a really great book that kind of covers this topic. It's called The Power of Habit. How do you get someone to take a product that you don't think you need and get them to buy it? And essentially what they figured out was that, you know, in the cleaning process, you would wash whatever it is that you need to wash, dry it, et cetera. But how do you get someone to convince them that they needed Breeze? Yeah. And essentially they changed the way that they marketed this product by having commercials of, well, you've already cleaned your home. The final step in that cleaning process after you've cleaned, vacuumed, mopped, et cetera. Last step, for Breeze your house. It'll take away any unwanted odors from now that we all have pets. It'll take away those pet odors that you can't get through from the regular cleaning. Yeah. So I think that's a really great story of how a framework that they started with, that they thought they needed, ended up having to change and evolve because it wasn't working. You know, there's probably other great examples out there that you can think of, too.
1: Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. <laughs> it's the and, and I use this everywhere. I've been using this for just about 10 years. And it's the story of the little blue pill. Everybody nowadays it's a category, right? It's a category unto itself. There's multiple drugs that are designed for erectile dysfunction. But the little blue pill, what some people nowadays don't understand, thats wasn't what it was designed for. And why you got to the point where you could have this whole market and how Pfizer could create the, the most successful drug ever, like not hyperbole ever, as far as revenue and profit margin, is they had a great feedback system. So, going again, going back to this idea that I've been kind of hammering on, their feedback system was great. They'd started a clinical trial, and they had noticed that their target population, who were 55 to 70-year-old uh, males, they weren't getting the heart. And so, I, th- I think I forgot to mention that it was a heart drug. So, they were in these trials, and if you are in heart failure or something else, there's certain physical activities that they would prefer you didn't do on a regular basis, Now, the good news is that if you have heart conditions, typically you don't have the ability to do those anyways physically. It's just not it's not going to work. But the cool thing, if you are the 55 year old man who's who's in this clinical trial, all of a sudden you have magic in your pants. It works again. (laughs) You can do it. Now, your doctor says, don't do that. But, you know, some from going back to the Pfizer before I go down the rabbit hole from Pfizer's perspective, They're freaking out. Executives are freaking out. They put half a billion dollars into developing this heart drug, which was supposed to capture the market. And what happens? It doesn't work, but they have all these, you know, to to put it crassly, they have all these old men with stiffies. What do you do with them? Well, we can't have them stay in the clinical trial, can we? Because that's a health risk at that age. And so what, what they figured out is We don't have a market for the heart drug. Like the numbers are never going to get where this makes sense to put out the cost for it. everything else. But what somebody was smart enough to do and brave enough to do is take the feedback and go, look, we have a data set that says this is a viable market. If we create the market, like this is not a market that in the early 90s, I think when it first came out was something that you would put on TV like you would have never put out the the two people in bathtubs ads and things like that that you see nowadays. You wouldn't have put out the, the going on in a date, you know, popping <laughs> your little blue pill beforehand. Um, you would have never seen those because it just wasn't something you put on TV. But Pfizer, they had the numbers that told them, look, there's a market here. And they, they went for it because they knew they had the numbers. But that was because they had a really good feedback loop. They're able to very quickly look at their market, say, this isn't going to work in this market. There's an uncaptured market over here for a product that does something, you know, that we didn't think it could do, but it does do it. And so I guess, you know, similar to Febreze, where you had that problem, you had to redirect your marketing instead for Pfizer, they had to redirect their product. And, you know, you and I have been in software long enough to know that that's actually probably how most companies start to generate revenue, but it feels like it's often a blind spot. You just have, you don't have the framework in place that can take advantage of that, or you don't have the people in place. Depends on the organization, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that every organization really needs to hone in on is who do you need to focus on this? I think that's also a bigger problem in today's market too, especially from the software perspective is that I think we're all customer centric by nature, you know, we want to see our customers happy regardless of what team you're on, whether you're in product, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in sales. We all want our customers to be successful. Where things get a little bit messy these days is that everyone has a stake in this conversation now, but who do you listen to? I'm not saying ignore all the feedback, it's great that feedback needs to be constantly generated and constantly turning. But the problem is, is how do you then get people internally to take that feedback seriously? And one of the things that I know that I've struggled with is everyone has a stake in the feedback loop. And it also comes down to determining how you prioritize that information. You know, I think every team brings something valuable. Sales will bring you problems that are happening within their sales process. But that's still a customer that hasn't quite purchased. So that's, you know, feedback that I'll take with a grain of salt sometimes. Mm -hmm. Maybe we're just not talking about it properly. There's a few different things that could go wrong with sales feedback versus one team that I think constantly gets under or overlooked is your customer success and support teams. Those are the teams that have valuable feedback that sometimes don't get to give feedback to the teams that need it. And I think they're the people that deal with the customers day in, day out. They're the ones that are troubleshooting and solving You know, when it comes to the software issues. And that feedback, they've got their own systems. One of the things that I talked about in, another conversation I've had with someone is something called data diarrhea. (laughs) And one thing that I love as a marketer is sorting through all the data that exists in our organization because they're all going to tell me...
1: Not sure I want to sort through it if you're going to call it diarrhea, though.
0: Yeah, but it kind of is, though. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to figure out where the lumps are in that diarrhea that are actually worth keeping. So as gross as this analogy is, it's actually true. And I kid you not, I have manually sat with various data from different systems and had to make sense of it because sales data tells me one thing, if it's updated correctly to begin with, then I look at the marketing information, which has, you know, the bare bones questions of, you know, NPS scores and, you know, are you happy with this? Great. That only tells me whether they're happy, but where I really want the problems and how to solve it and where do I go talk to these people support and customer success. That is a wealth of knowledge that sits in its own database that has to be brought over as well. And implementation. Yeah. A hundred. And
1: then, you know, the first hundred days with the software is always that, a, another really interesting one. Cause that's the, the WTF moment. Right. And I think we often poo-poo that we say, ah, that's why we have an implementation team. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you know what? Implementation is so critical to any business as well because if you can't get someone up and running within a hundred days, yeah, that means something's got to change. It's and you know obviously things happen where your customers busy, etc., but that shouldn't stop you from being able to get the information that you need to set someone up quickly. So I agree with that. Now, one thing we've also talked a little bit about is that incorporating other things into these frame into technical frameworks. Yeah, we've kind of alluded to some of this where we're talking about the feedback loop, but, you know, there's different models now where you're seeing software that has a pay-as-you-go offering, the freemium offerings, etc. You know, what are some ways that you've seen that implemented into a technical framework really well? Yeah, I
1: think that's that's a really interesting and really quickly evolving part of it, right? Because if you think about it, right, so if I'm going to be product-led or growth-led, I need to be able to move people through those stages from free to paid, or I need to have, you know, a technical way that I can integrate the data that I'm gaining from a free user to create the premium tiers so that I can have a way to move them through the tiers. So there's always, you know, people always poo poo how technical you need to be to actually have a really good tiering system. And I think that's one of the skill gaps that we are, that we're starting to see now exacerbated you used to have longer cycles where you could you know what they'll pay for it next quarter you don't do that anymore right you had the series of baby unicorns and the unicorn unicorns where they kind of they grew faster than their revenue could grow and now they're kind of deflating a little bit or they're having their horn they're having their unicorn cut off I, I, I don't know what the proper analogy is for a unicorn that's not so unicorn
0: you just I gotta cut so, the yeah. horn off <laughs> Cut the horn off and it's <laughs> now a horse. It's no longer a unicorn. <laughs> still valuable, right?
1: Still valuable.
0: Still valuable. Still going to work,
1: but it but doesn't I, have a horn. And, and sometimes it comes down to the, per, the, the makeup of your team, right? I mean, you have to have product people who get the business value. But you also have to have marketing and customer support people that recognize a technical problem versus, you know, I just need the screen green. Which is, I remember when I was working for an implementer, there was a couple of times where like, we don't like this color. <laughs> is there another color we can do? I'm like, how much you got? I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a project management triangle, right? It's, you can have either cost low, price low, or time low. Which one do you want high?
0: Yeah, no. And you, you know what? You mentioned something a little bit earlier there too, where people need to... Kind of ease back on the technicalese that's kind of being out thrown out there. <laughs> yeah. One thing I think that confuses anyone on any call is the level of technicalese that may come up. You know, you've got one person who may speak one level of technicalese, then you've got another person who's trying to implement another language of technicalese on top of it. And then all of a sudden the call's not making sense. One of my favorite quotes that was actually said by someone at Google during one of their webinars was customers don't buy things they don't understand. Yeah. So if everyone's speaking technically, you know, if you can't easily communicate what it is that you're trying to get across, you're probably going to lose the audience really quickly. So I think that's a great point too. how technical does someone really need to be? Probably not as technical as they think they need to be, unless you are a solution architect that's going to go build this thing from ground up. like. That's one thing I think we all need to take a step back from is stop talking about big buzzwords. And I know in tech, it was like the big thing where everyone was waiting for Salesforce and Dreamforce to happen and be like, what's the new buzzword? Let's all jump on this bandwagon. The buzzwords don't always translate for every industry or every product. Yeah. You know, a little less buzzy, a little more get to the point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When I was uh, was an uh, IT consultant and... I used to do a lot of work with people looking for information management, particularly for ERP systems. And ERP is one of the worst areas for that. It's, I mean, everything's some kind of flow or it's, you know, a technical implement. You're like, it, dude, you just, it's AP. Call it AP. It's finance. Call it finance. You know, human capital. What the, is human capital my- management? Like I'm not chip on the table. And, you know, you get into these kind of, and so we build out these technical languages around these things to make them seem more palatable. Like you're all of a sudden really cool. Like I'm an HCM expert. Well, you're an HR, which is great. Just be an HR. Like we've just kind of over titled things. And then every title has to have a series of technical terms that goes along with it. And it becomes an issue because now, you know, to your point, then you add this matrix of industry and departmental terms. So, you know, you could be talking to the HR expert at, in a pharma company and you could be talking to the HR expert in a government and they'll have, they'll, there'll be no, in their minds, they don't do the same thing. Yeah. End of the day, technically you do the same thing. What you care about is different. And I think we often forget that part. It feels like we're, we're spending a lot of time trying to, to make everything, you know, 12 miles deep. And, and so you can have exactly what you want for every little piece. And we're not saying, we're not kind of doing the old school root cause where we say, it's a document has to get from A to B, and then it has to be available from C to Z. Like, let's make sure the right compliance pieces are on it, but let's not turn this into some newfangled, like it's just making something available. Let's not be silly here.
0: Yeah. Reminds me of the time this guy, he calls himself the internet guy, didn't know what a CRM was. And, you know, worst thing he can do is go ask the internet what that means. And <laughs> <laughs> I really felt sorry for some of the folks that were trying to respond because they were like, it's customer relationship management. He's like, and I'm supposed to know what that means? What does that mean? This is a guy who just doesn't know anything about software. He's like, explain it to me. And, you know, people went into features and benefits. And the guy was like, so would this be something I use? Cause I don't I don't think I, I find value in any of this. He's like, I don't talk to customers. I don't have customers. I have clients that yeah. give me briefs. Very different audience as well. You're not dealing with And you have to, you know, obviously learn the nuances and languages between where your customers are. But it was really funny trying to see certain folks from a CRM company try to explain what a CRM is. And the best response that, you know, explained it all was, it's a tool for sales guys to record their stuff. And the guy was like, that I understand. He's like, why didn't someone say that first? And I'm like, see, we all get into this really bad habit of over explaining what we do, what it is we're trying to sell when really and truly, you just need to come back down to the human level sometimes.
1: Yeah, and I think it gets even worse because you then built up these cult of personalities and these cult of technical languages. So you'll have somebody, so taking that same example, you have somebody who goes, they don't have customers. Well, they must (laughs) need a totally different system. So we need to make a CLRM for Client Relationship Management. Because it's got to be totally different or he would totally gotten the customer. So, you know, I think sometimes we it's not just the customer, it's the way we give the feedback and and we talk through the problem. Sometimes we're talking through the problem like it's a new problem rather than just a, okay, are we talking the way the customer talks or are we stuck in our own heads?
0: No, a hundred percent agree with that. And you know, this kind of goes nicely into the next point how do you get everyone on board to use the same framework? I think there's always a battle of people always wanting to try different things all at the same time. And then it ends up being a mishmash of like, I like my strategy better. No, this one works better. Here's why. But how do you get everyone to just be on board to do the same thing? I find that's always a little bit of a struggle.
1: Yeah, I think what gets really interesting there is you have two parts to that, right? You have the part of it, which is if your existing software, it should be possible, we know that it's not always possible, to speak the own language internally. And then we have to have some self-awareness that says, we don't know everything. And then we compare it to how our customers are talking. Sometimes it's just about good old hard work. It's about having that framework where you say, before we ever finalize a feature or before we ever build out that marketing piece, We're going to talk to a few customers. We're not going to go to every customer. We're going to pass the sniff test. It's got to make sense to some. Where it gets really, where I think there's some really interesting things, and I think where we kind of built out this cult of personality is when you're introducing a new product. Not everything's going to be the next iPod. Like, it's just not. Like Not everything changes the world at a level where you go, holy bleep. Like, if you think about the iPod, it is the genesis of the downfall of BlackBerry. It is the shift in Microsoft's folk, uh, you know, the way Microsoft handled it. It killed open source music sharing. Like it was one of those products that changed the world. But not everybody's Steve Jobs and not everybody is going to create the product that changes the world. And I think that's a good thing. Like we don't need the world to change every two years. But we do need new stuff and things and new ways to think about it. And I think that's where where makers really come into their own is thinking about just keep it simple. And how do we fix a problem? Not every problem has to be a problem we didn't know about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can say that again. But uh, seeing that you might be an iPod person, how do you think the uh, new Walkman is going to fare?
1: My nostalgia heart. (laughs) I had a Walkman. I had the yellow waterproof Walkman with the with the funky earbuds. I loved it. Um, so my nostalgia heart really gets it. My my practical and somewhat miserly cheap heart goes. I've got just as power as long as I have a cell signal, I have just as powerful a device in my pocket. And if I'm going to have earphones in, I'm not expecting the same as I get through my. I don't want to tell you how expensive sound system with vinyl and a record player and a CD player and the big extra amplifier. I don't expect that sound. I'm doing it because I want my personal noise. So I think they're either 10 years ahead of the market because it's not nostalgia-ish enough. Like my generation who would buy it may not have the money to pay It's some ridiculously uber expensive device like we're not quite there yet and the majority of my age group is still trying to get their kids into college like (laughs) there's just not a market to make it worth it or they're i can't tell if they're 10 years behind when you still had you know you you see guardians of galaxy and he's got the little mp3 player can't tell if they're 10 years behind or 10 years too early but I don't think today is the day
0: no i agree with that and i can totally go into another hour worth of nostalgic things (laughs) that i've bought or seen but that's gonna have to wait for another day all right well thank you everyone for listening to this episode stay tuned we have some great guests coming up on future episodes that will dive into these topics and more until then see you next time and thank you chris
1: thank you